0: This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years.
1: I guess I was a victim of really poor... I was the type of um, kid that had really good grades and was expected to either do law or medicine because that's what you did if you had the grades I had. I didn't want to be a doctor, so that defaulted me towards studying the law. Um, and then when I got to university to study law, I, I realised very quickly it, it, it wasn't for me. It didn't, it just didn't wash. I, I, I wasn't able to absorb all of the case law and repeat it ad hominem in the way I was supposed to. But the way that Aberdeen University organised its courses at the time. Um, if I wanted to change subject, I would have had to take a year out and start again. Financially, that wasn't an option. My, my parents were not cool with the idea of a gap year or, or wasting any time, so I just had to stick with it. So I, I did get my law degree, but, but it wasn't a good experience. It's from Edinburgh and Glasgow who were doing everything that gets far away from their homes, and so they were travelling to Aberdeen, and I felt like I ran. now obviously that that wasn't yeah, true. Yeah, this there is Brody, a ginger cocker spaniel, and he's in here, so he doesn't bark. That's the plan, at least. And that I was a real but dis- That was quite.
0: Were friendly, or was it more you just felt
1: like there was such a very much so? I had a delightful childhood. My parents were together until I was well into my, my teenage years, so I had a sort of semi rural, if you can call it that, um, upbringing in Elgin, a, a town that Fraser Nelson will know well because he was just along the road in, in Forest. Had a lovely primary school that was you know full of great playing fields and really enjoyed my school experience. And then I moved to secondary school in Dundee and that was a real shock to my system because suddenly my school didn't have any grass and it was a really sort of urban inner city school with completely different challenges to the one that I came from but I was good at school, I loved school, I had a really great childhood there's no doubt about that. It no longer exists that years later become, um, sorry it was Edinburgh, Edinburgh South West it's anymore, and that was Alistair Darling Street. So when I went to my first, I guess I was a victim of really poor careers advice at school and actually I think that's still a big problem. Back in my day they had you know a newfangled computer programme you'd put in all your interests and it would churn out what it thought you should be when you grew up and I was the type of kid that had really good grades and was expected to either do law or medicine because that's what you did if you had the grades I had. I didn't want to be a doctor so that defaulted me towards studying the law. And then when I got to university to study law I realised very quickly it wasn't for me it didn't it just didn't wash I wasn't able to absorb all of the case law and repeat it ad hominem in the way I was supposed to but the way that Aberdeen University organised its courses at the time if i wanted to change subject i would have had to take a year out and start again financially that wasn't an option my parents were not cool with the idea of a gap year or, or wasting any time so i just had to stick with it so I, I did get my law degree but it wasn't a good experience to stand and and that's what happened that that's ended up getting elected in 2011 age 29 so these things always how you feel about them at the time and maybe what the actual reality was can be quite different but certainly for me arriving at Aberdeen University in 1999 what I found myself in amongst was lots and lots of privately educated students from Edinburgh and Glasgow who were doing everything they could to get as far away from their homes so they were traveling to Aberdeen and I felt like I was the only state school kid around. Now, obviously that that wasn't true. There were other people there, but I didn't find them. I wasn't exposed to them. So none of my friends at university were studying the same course as me. And that, there was a real disjuncture there. That that was quite hard. And then everything started to lapse. And it led obviously to the SNP winning and and, um, winning well. Um, there, there was never but, any animosity I, I, when I say I felt out of place it's not like I didn't feel welcome it's more that I didn't before. really have anything in common with these other students they'd had a different school experience to me because they'd arrived together and there's quite often pupils from the same school they had established firm relationships together and they also had parents who were working in the law so when they talked about what they were doing in their summers they were going to go and intern in some law firm and I was going off to like Work in a part time job helping put crates of food on oil rigs. We had completely different worlds. You know, I had to work in the summer to pay on my way through university. I couldn't work for free. All that stuff just made me feel very different. System and also to kind of generate some activity around what he was doing in the Scottish my way around. I knew what I was doing. What, what I didn't have a lot of experience was actual public. So I'm not thinking about politics. In fact, I don't vote until I'm 23. In my early career, people always thought I was that kind of student politician type that had maybe come up through the ranks of NUS or I'd been really politically active at university. That wasn't the case at all. I I wasn't political at all. And the only kind of route into my politics was when I started working as a welfare advisor. And I realized when I was doing lots of financial advice and housing advice, I was trying to make the system work for people or to guide them through this really complex, difficult system. And I started at that point to understand the role of politics in shaping the system so you, you could either exist with the system as it was or you could seek to change it and the way to do that was through politics and the most natural party for me was the labour party so we're talking now 2003 tony blair has done some amazing bold ambitious things by this point the national minimum wage has been brought in the referendums on the creation of the scottish parliament the welsh assembly have taken place there's lots of movement around LGBT rights, it feels like the country's changing and I want to be a part of that and it was those issues that that drew me to the Labour Party and I became a a member of the Labour Party in Edinburgh South West, which was a constituency that no longer exists, it would a few years later become, sorry it was Edinburgh Central that I joined it, it became Edinburgh South West, Edinburgh Central doesn't exist anymore and that was Alistair Darling's seat. So when I went to my first Labour Party meeting, Ian Gray's wife was the constituency secretary. Ian Gray had been a member of the Scottish Parliament and was at that point a special advisor to Alistair Darling in the Department of Trade and Industry. And Alistair's career was still on the up. He was doing great things and going great places. And I was just exposed to these amazing political figures. And I just got more and more involved and more and more entrenched in the local party. Before you knew it, I was running other people's campaigns. I was getting comments from my job to become a Labour Party organiser and running key seat campaigns in in elections. And I spent a long time getting other people elected, mostly men. And I sort of realised one day, maybe I could stand, maybe I could do this. And the reason I was so lucky to get elected, I guess, so quickly and at such an early stage in my career was... I was owed. I was owed favours by a lot of men I'd got elected. So I was able to sort of go around them all and cash those chips in and ask them to help me to stand. And that's what happened. That That's how I ended up getting elected in 2011, aged 29. It got me into where when there was leadership opportunities in the Labour Party, everybody kind of expected me to stand, even though I was still very inexperienced and, and very young at that stage. And it's referendum. Huge issue throughout the whole of my political career and it's... Just, the 12
0: months where it wasn't dominating everything
1: as, I don't know, karma? Not really, no. So I was so lucky. So I was one of five Labour MSPs elected in 2011 that were under 30. And that was in part because Labour expected to win that election. In fact, they were quite far ahead in the polls until about 16 weeks out. And then everything started to collapse. And it led, obviously, to the SNP winning and winning well. But I was the only one of those under 30 MSPs who had really worked extensively in the Parliament beforehand. So, I, And I was working before the election for Lord George Fox's as his office manager in the Scottish Parliament. So I knew where everything was, I knew how to get everything done. He was also obviously a a lord, so he was travelling back and forth to the House of Lords at the time. So I don't think he would mind me saying this now, but my main job was to make him look busy. And I did that by writing as many parliamentary questions as I possibly could. And I almost had a target of writing like 30 a day. So I would get really analytical and really deep into the detail of policy issues and just table lots and lots of parliamentary questions in part to gum up the system and also to kind of generate some activity around what he was doing in the Scottish Parliament. So I knew my way around, I knew what I was doing. What I didn't have a lot of experience in was actual public speaking or asking questions in Parliament or being able to hold a room and and all that type of stuff. But that came fairly quickly. So this is the aftermath of the referendum. So I'm thinking late 2014. I'm at at my usual course time, I'm living in Edinburgh East and um, Sheila Gilmore MP um, is. How, how trendy
0: is it? How trendy is
1: it? It's on the up. It's not like the Desres location that absolutely is today, but it's, it's definitely uh, on. So we had our, our, our Labour Party meetings in Portobello High Street before it became as cool as it is now. And um, yeah. so, of course, by this point, the SNP have an outright majority in the Scottish Parliament, so they have a mandate for an independence referendum. And you're building up to, when I get elected, the Edinburgh Agreement, which was where David Cameron gave the Scottish Parliament the Section 30 order it needed to hold a referendum. So we knew a referendum was coming, but that didn't really kick off as an issue until 2012. So I had maybe 12 months out of a nine year political career that wasn't dominated by the constitutional question every other minute, the minute that that campaign kicked off, everything leading up to 2014 and everything since 2014 has meant that Scottish politics is dominated first and foremost by the Scottish constitution. Every single domestic policy issue is seen through the prism of whether you are yes or no. It is the stranglehold on anything ever happening again in Scottish politics. It persists to this day and I'm sure we'll get into the detail of that a bit further along. But there there was definitely moment for me in terms of the independence referendum cascading my career in in an upward direction because it was because of that that i got my first chance to do question time it's because i did question time that i then got asked to do the big stv or ITV independence referendum debate in the lead up to 2014, a two-hour live TV debate where it was myself and Ruth Davidson and Douglas Alexander and I was very much an unknown junior name at that point. So those experiences kind of catapulted my career and, and got me into a position where when there was leadership opportunities in the Labour Party, everybody kind of expected me to stand, even though I was still very inexperienced and, and very young at that stage. So the independence referendum was a huge issue throughout the whole of my political career, and it still is. Thought so I was capable of doing it, and they were maybe going to ask one of the other MSPs to do it, and I had to insist that it was because I was like, "Hang on, I'm the deputy leader of the party," and forced my way into it. And I, I think what I did is it. Part the best bit for me because it was the only time really when I ever got to progress issues in Parliament I came in to fight for. So, you know, I joined the Labour Party because I want to live in a fairer, more equal world. I believe in using the power of the state to effect change. I believe in the equality of opportunity and I think you should use the state to create that level playing field for everyone to live up to their potential. That's the only time in my political career we ever got to talk about that in those purest terms without the constitution being used as either the sort of barrier or the enabler of any sort of progress. And that was what was so frustrating. I still find that really frustrating. You know,
0: leaders in Scotland are women. Ruth Davidson, uh, Nicola Sturgeon and yourself. Um, and yeah. that feels very different. I mean, as someone who spends most of their time in UK Parliament in Westminster, um, how did you all, how did you find, and it maybe because it's a stereotype, there's a sense that women are more civil than or they will be more, they there'll be more there'll be politics, or maybe just less openly aggressive, maybe more passive, and how, how did you How did you all find
1: communicating? I, I don't think anybody could look at these back um, when it was myself, Nicola and Ruth, and say combative, or, or somehow <laughs> more collegiate, because we were all women. Um, that's just for the birds, it's just absolute nonsense. We we were all, you know, very much. So this is, the aftermath of the referendum, so I'm thinking kind of late 2014, and I'm at my usual crappy Thursday night Labour Party branch meeting in Portobello at this time. I'm living in Edinburgh East, and I kind of wonder whether you know enough was made of that at the time. Well, it's, it's on the up. It's not like the Desrez location that absolutely is today, but it's it's definitely on the up. So we had our, our Labour Party meetings in Portobello High Street before it became as cool as it is now. And um, I just looked at my phone, I can't remember if Twitter was around or not, but somebody had texted me to say that a Nassarwar had just stood up at Scottish Labour's a massive fundraising gala dinner in Glasgow and resigned. He'd resigned on the stage. There was this huge dramatic kind of moment and there was a vacancy for for deputy leader of the party. And I just got up at that meeting and went home. And by uh, about an hour later, I had my kind of closest political friends and, and allies in my flat in Edinburgh, throwing around whether or not it was a good idea for me to stand to be deputy leader or not. And I guess what I want to say about this is, I really wanted to be deputy leader far more so than I ever wanted to be leader <laughs> of the of the party because I thought deputy leader was where my skill set was at. I was a campaigner. I'd spent many years as an organizer running key seat campaigns. That's what I wanted to do was to be that kind of like engine room of the party, getting people active and motivated and organized. and creating a you know an election-winning machine again. I thought I had the capacities and the abilities to do that really well. And I never thought leadership was going to be for me. And I certainly didn't expect it to come, I think, maybe five months and one week later. And the difference, the big event was, of course, the 2015 general election, where Labour in Scotland went from having 41 MPs to just one MP. Jim Murphy was... The leader who I was deputising to, he'd lost his seat. Douglas Alexander had lost his seat. Scottish Labour had lost all their kind of big beasts, so to speak. And I just felt like the whole world, obviously that wasn't the case, but it felt like the whole world was just turning and looking at me in expectation that I would step up. And I was doing First Minister's questions at the time against Alex Salmond, So I'd I'd had a bit of experience of really operating at that highest level in the Scottish Parliament because Jim couldn't do FMQs, he wasn't in the Scottish Parliament. And actually there'd been early talk about whether they thought I was capable of doing it and they were maybe going to ask one of the other MSPs to do it. And I had to insist that it was me because I was like, hang on, I'm I'm the deputy leader of the party here, I'm doing this and forced my way into it, and a like, third of our MSPs um, in that yeah. 12 months. That, they, yeah, they did. So there was a prospect that they would ask one of the other MSPs to, to lead it, and I thought, well, I, I, this is a sink or swim moment. I either need to kind of step up or or accept I can't do this, and I, I stepped up and I did a few FMQs against Alex Salmon just before he quit, and that obviously led to the start of the, the Nicola Sturgeon era, who I would spend most of my time going up against. The unionistic uh, agenda, and that perpetuating cycle of suiting both the SNP and the Tories to talk about the situation reinforced that. Um, and then in the end, you decided obviously just you. So the 2017 general election, see how quickly we, we speed <laughs> through the election, was a really positive thing for the party. Just loads, loads, just loads
0: of record. I don't think
1: anybody could look at FMQs back then, when it was myself, Nicola and Ruth, and say it was any less combative, or somehow more collegiate, because we were all women. That's just for the birds. It's just absolute nonsense. We we were all, you know, very much at the top of our game, very clear about our values and what we wanted to achieve, and we're going hard at it in the Scottish Parliament every Thursday. There's no doubt about that. And a lot of you know, it's funny. People say to me now they didn't appreciate how good a time that was or they didn't appreciate how amazing it was to have three female leaders then, but they see it now and they kind of wonder whether, you know, enough was made of that at the time about how important a moment that was. I think if anything, it meant that some things we discussed had more meaning or a better focus because we were all women. So for example, things like the role of women in the economy, trying to encourage more women into work, and not just kind of be defined as carers for children. The narrative around how we talked about issues like that definitely changed because we had three female leaders, but I don't think it meant we were all fluffy and nice and just talked about women's issues. I think it was a really good time, and a lot of people were quite proud of that period. Votes back from both pools. And I also remember looking at my parliamentary party. I was standing in <laughs> front of them, quite literally looking at them, as we were debating a deal about something to do with Brexit. I was really keen that he um, stay committed to the single market, and there was some opposition to that in my group. So, we in a group meeting about what our position was going to be, and I remember looking at them and thinking, half of this room, the SNP are the enemy, and the other half think the Tories are the enemy. It's a huge problem. Unless we can kind of resolve that, we're not really going to be able to make any. So the most challenging thing now, looking back on it, was I was leader for just over two years and in those two years I did four national elections and the EU referendum. So we never felt like there was any actual time to stop and plan and start thinking more strategically about how to rebuild the party for the longer term which again was something I felt like I had someone to contribute to because that's the type of role that maybe you would task with a deputy leader and I had lots of things I wanted to, to do organisationally around the party to rebuild that but it was just one battle after another. So we come straight out of the 2015 general election into preparing for the 2016 Scottish Parliament election and that felt like a damage limitation exercise. You've got to understand we've just been absolutely routed in heartland areas that the Labour Party had held in many cases for five decades, like the party was in shock and it was having an existential crisis there 's no doubt about that I mean it was awful in so many ways, and everybody therefore assumes something very similar is about to happen in the two thousand and sixteen Scottish Parliament elections and in a way it does, but we 're saved by the fact that we have proportional representation so you know, the vote share was still reflected in the overall seat numbers. It wasn't quite so calamitous. But we did lose a third of our MSPs in that 12 months that passed. And that's what led to the Tories becoming the second largest party in Scotland rather than the third. And in a way that also reinforced Scottish politics always being about the Constitution. Because you always had the SNP as the biggest party advocating for yes. And the Conservatives were the biggest party arguing for the union. And actually it really suited the Conservatives and it really suited Ruth to talk always about the union rather than the Tories' domestic agenda. And that perpetuating cycle of it really suiting both the SNP and the Tories to talk about the constitution reinforced that for all the years that followed.
0: Present, President, which you did after this. Um, but not on the question
1: of independence, what do you... So the 2017 general election, see how quickly we, we speed through these contests... <laughs> the 2017 election was a really positive thing for the party. you and I married to an SNP minister. Yes, so a uh, yes. curious kind of story of my political life. But it's in such short order as well, you know. Some people go years as leader and never have to face an electoral contest. And then I had four elections and one referendum in, in two years. So... 2017 was a, was a good thing, it was a good day. The Labour Party um, had gone up in the polls. We started to win some seats back. We went from having one MP to seven MPs. There was lots of positives about that. Although we'd only won seven seats, we had come within a thousand votes of winning nearly another 20. So it felt like a lot more were in play. And that was really exciting. And it felt like there was a lot of progress to make there. So suddenly there were Labour SNP marginals again. But that brings its own tensions, right? So you've got to understand if you're not following Scottish politics every single day, that the job for the Labour Party in Scotland is to appeal to both Conservative and SNP voters. We we need both and able to win across the country again, but the messages for one that work don't work for the other group. So finding a narrative that allows you to win votes back from both pools is really, really difficult. And I also remember looking at my parliamentary party, I was standing in front of them, quite literally looking at them, as we were debating what we were going to do about something to do with Brexit. I was really keen that the party stay committed to the single market, and there was some opposition to that in my group. So we were having a group meeting about what our position was going to be, and I remember looking at them and thinking, half of this room think the SNP are the enemy, and the other half think the Tories are the enemy. And that's a huge problem unless we can kind of resolve that we're not really going to be able to make any sort of real real progress and at that point i think people had already decided that it was a bit soft on the smp and i was you know far more likely to be in the pool that, that considered the tories to be the party that the labour party should be you know constantly focused on trying to defeat but it was the time where We just won seven seats in areas with really strong no votes, if that makes sense. So the analysis of the election result was Labour's made this much progress and in order to make more progress, it needs to be even more unionist in its outlook. Whereas I was looking at the election results going, right, there are now 20 seats where we're in competition with the SNP within 1,000 or 1,500 votes of the SNP. We've got to work harder at trying to pull people back from the SNP to the Labour Party. And that was just really, really difficult to kind of pull together and navigate through. And I nearly quit just before the summer of 2017. And I I went to my best friend in politics, Ian Gray, a guy that I've mentioned right at the start of this podcast, one of the first people I'd met in the party. And I told him, I I think that I'd had enough that my time had come and I'd had a really crap year. I'd broken up with my partner. My best friend had died of motor neuron disease. There was a lot going on in my personal life. And I was just like, have I still got enough heart for this? And he said, you, you need to spend the summer thinking about it and, and come back when you're really sure what you want to do. So yeah, I came back towards the end of the summer recess, pretty set in my ways that I wanted to quit. And I think I quit on the 29th of August that year. And then um, basically the Parliament came back the next day. So people were really annoyed at me because they didn't see it coming. They also thought I'd wasted the summer, which could have been used as a contest as an opportunity to make sure the party had a leader going back in to that parliamentary term. and That's all fair criticism. But but that's the truth of what happened. That was what was going on in my head.
0: The same thing happened when Doris went on it, um I think she was the first um, to go on it and um, Matt Hancock. Now the flip side argument is going to uh, you know, a larger audience. How how do you see it now? do you think um I mean Obviously, Matt Hancock has had a lot of money going on it. Flats about like, people reaching out to wider audiences, <laughs> or, or, or do you think it's just one which is always be, be a bit too tricky? Yes. Well.
1: So, uh, is, if that's your definition of SNP curious, then I'm not sure I can avoid it. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I'm married Jenny Jennie the Transport Minister in the Scottish Government in the summer there. So, you know, we, we've been together a long time now. It's so if you say you're soft on the SNP, there's no, there's no denying that, that. was really important, and certainly in the personal lifetimes. But I guess. What I mean by that is what I was trying to say to you earlier, Katie, about if you want to get votes back from a political party that you've lost so many votes to, surely you want to spend some time understanding what makes those voters tick and what they care about. And you know, the SNP have won eight successive elections now. They're an election winning machine. And you know, I've been reflecting on it a lot recently in my day job because now I'm professor at the University of Glasgow, about why that is or how they've achieved that success and you know there's the work of Professor Ailsa Henderson at University of Edinburgh that's really worth looking at here because she points out that the reason they're so successful is they've actually managed to make standing up for Scotland a valence issue in its own right so standing up for Scotland is, is a metric of how you're doing in Scotland just as educational attainment is or how well your A&E departments are doing or how many houses you're building and if the first test that the electorate set for you in Scotland is whether or not you're going to stand up for them then it's no wonder really that the SNP win that out of the park each and every time. So... As a long-winded way of saying I've probably spent more time than a lot of people in the Labour Party have trying to understand what SNP politicians and SNP voters think. So surely that, that makes me SNP curious. I think maybe more people in the Labour Party need to be SNP curious. I think it should go evidence that John Smith Centre about perfecting remotely and using virtual parliament systems if it means they can balance family life better. It means that you know if you represent a rural constituency, you can be in your community and still vote in parliament when you really need to be. Goodness, parliament functions that, that needs to be addressed. That's the part of the reason some of these younger politicians are walking away. And again, it's mostly women, not exclusively, but it's mostly women that are leaving um, in their early 40s, something else. So I've created quite a negative picture there of why they're they're walking away, but I hate any analysis that says they're walking away because they're not coping or it's too stressful or hard. I think for a lot of women, for myself and for lots of MSPs I can point to, Chloe Smith, Deanna Davidson. I think we have to accept them at word when they say it's been- Let's be clear about this. I I did it for the money and so did Matt Hancock.
0: I've I've done (laughs) a
1: secondary (laughs) reason for doing it is to talk about politics or political issues. And he said he wanted to talk about dyslexia. For me, I kind of wanted to show that you could be young and gay and in politics and be accepted. That was really important to me. I, I still think it's important. But the main driver was, of course, the the money. And I know it was controversial, and God, there are people in uh, Scottish politics that still to this day are very angry with me for going, and I lost a few friendships as a consequence of the decisions that I made, and that's the sore thing I'll have to carry. But in all honesty, Katie, the public, in my experience, didn't care. I never really received any major criticism from my constituents or from people I would meet when I was out and about. If anything, it was a massive icebreaker. People were desperate to talk about it. They want to know what Ant and Dec are like in real life. And I would always say to them, you know, if you had the chance to do it, you'd do it, right? And not a single person has ever said to me, no. It's a light entertainment programme. It was three weeks of my life and a nine year political career. I understand it upset people. I don't regret it. I wasn't kicked out of my party, although it was very difficult for me when I came back. And I stayed on the back benches of the Parliament for another 18 months after that, before I left Parliament altogether to do the job I'm doing now at the John Smith Centre. party in early spring to set their position on what happens next. And the reason I think it has to change, is, despite being the eight in a row election winning, I don't think they'll be able to define the frame of the next election in the way they've been able to do it on every previous occasion. Labour are sitting, you know, a good 25 percentage points uh, ahead in the polls. It's much harder for the SNP to argue, as they did in 2015 and 2017, that Labour might not win, that you needed, regardless of who was charge in Westminster, to stop first. And also, there's a poverty pandemic taking place in this country right now. You know, the cost of living crisis is going to be front and centre of the next um, general election contest for the. S&P. So I think there there are two things going on here. I remember as part of our work at the centre doing some quick analysis of the 2019 general election and realising that that women were leaving the Westminster Parliament far earlier with far fewer years served, and there was a big trend in that direction that forced some big questions about. What was the gender dimension to this and we know a lot of this stuff a lot of it is just how unfamily friendly political life is including in the Scottish Parliament which likes to profess it's family friendly by having a vote at five o'clock every night but that as everybody knows is not when politics is done in fact if you want to move things on if you you want to build the networks and make the progress to do all the things you came into politics to do you have to work far harder than that and be around a lot longer than that so there's some serious issues around how we do politics in this country that, that needs addressed. Things like remote voting, it, it was forced into our politics during the pandemic, but I think it should be here to stay. And we've got evidence at John Smith Centre about how the public are perfectly comfortable with their MPs voting remotely and using virtual parliament systems, if it means they can balance family life better, or if it means that, you know, if you represent a rural constituency, you can be in your community and still vote in parliament when you really need to be. So. Goodness knows there's an awful lot of modernisation around how parliament functions that, that needs to be addressed. Part of the reason some of these younger politicians are walking away, and again, it's mostly women, not exclusively, but it's mostly women that are leaving in their early 40s to do something else. So I've created quite a negative picture there of why they're, they're walking away, but I hate any analysis that says they're walking away because they're not coping or it's too stressful or it's too hard. I think for a lot of women, for myself, for Ruth Davidson, for lots of MSPs I can point to, Chloe Smith, Deanna Davidson. I think we have to accept them at their word when they say it's been their choice to walk away, that it can be a positive choice to say, I've I've done what I can in the parliament and I'm choosing now to do something else. We shouldn't assume they're walking away for wholly negative reasons, even if we accept there's a lot about parliament that needs to change. So I think it's quite a complex picture and it's one that we need to understand better. But there's something very fundamentally wrong in a market system that consistently produces middle-class middle-aged white men at the rate that the house of commons does and when a market like that is broken you do something to try and fix it. Wherever you sit in the political spectrum this is a market that's fundamentally broken that, that needs an intervention. An advisors to labour leader called for me Corbyn to go and that I had to endorse um, Owen Smith. He was challenging Jeremy for the leadership and I regret I, not because I regret wanting to see a change in the leader of the UK Labour Party. I regret it because it created unnecessary um, party handling for me that um, meant it was so difficult to really keep the party together and on the front foot. And the, I wrote about this in The Times last week at kind of great, great length. And the SNP's intention now is to make the next general election a de facto referendum. Now I say that's her position now because I think that will change and I think Nicola Sturgeon's bought herself some time by saying she's going to have a party conference in early spring to set their position on what happens next through the constitution. And the reason I think it has to change is despite being the eight in a row election winning machine that they are, I don't think they'll be able to define the frame of the next election in the way they've been able to do it on every previous occasion. Labour are sitting, you know, a good 25 percentage points ahead in the polls now. It's much harder for the SNP to argue, as they did in 2015 and 2017, that Labour might not win, that you needed MPs, regardless of who was in charge in Westminster, to stand up for Scotland. And also, there's a poverty pandemic taking place in this country right now. You know, the cost of living crisis is surely going to be front and centre of the next general election contest for the SNP to then try and make it about the Constitution, I think, will be rejected by the electorate. You know, the the people are sovereign. The people will decide what the question is that's being asked in the electoral contest. So if they can't set the frame, it's very difficult to see how they're going to win that de facto referendum if the people answer a different question. I wouldn't be wholly surprised if they move away from that position and say that the 2026 Scottish Parliament election will become the de facto referendum. And what they'll seek then is what they got in 2011 which would be an outright majority so they'll say it's 15 years later we're a generation on it was a once in a generation event but we're a generation on don't vote for any of the other smaller parties let's make this uh, a de facto referendum and seek a mandate on those grounds and then point to the precedent of the edinburgh agreement as how they get the next referendum. I suspect that's where they'll end up. That comes from no insider knowledge, by the way. That's not what's being discussed around the, the dinner table in our house. That's just my reading of the ruin, so to speak. I, I can't see how they win this argument in the general election, so they have to go to the next contest beyond that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't that. So the bit of advice I, I regret most, and I'll, I'll save the blushes of the person that gave me it at the time, was an advisor who told me I had to, as Scottish Labour leader, call for Jeremy Corbyn to go, and that I had to endorse Owen Smith when he was challenging Jeremy for the leadership. And I, I regret that, not because I regret wanting to see a change in the leader of the UK Labour Party. I regret it because it created unnecessary kind of party handling crap for me that meant it was so difficult for me beyond that to really keep the party together and on the front foot and in the direction that I wanted to take it. I didn't need to say those words out loud for people to know that that's what I instinctively thought and I think actually there's there's something of an arrogance in that and thinking that that my voice was going to make a difference that day if I added it into the mix. I regret that now. I regret that a great deal. I wish I hadn't I wish I hadn't done that. I'm not sure it would have made my prospects markedly better, but it might have made them certainly easier for a little bit longer. Pleasure.